0: I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Hello and welcome to Doomsday Watch. Before we start, some news. We've been working behind the scenes to produce a 10-part documentary series looking at the global threats of tomorrow, and that's gonna launch on the 12th of October. That means we're going to pause the regular Ukraine war bulletins, but stay tuned, we've got one today, with Ian Bond, Director of Foreign Policy at the Center for European Reform, and himself a Russia expert and former diplomat, We'll be talking about the dramatic events of the past few days, the mobilisation, the sham referendums and the attacks on pipelines in the Baltic Sea. But in true Doomsday Watch fashion, we also look at the big picture. After Ian, I also spoke to Rana Mitter, Professor of Contemporary China at Oxford University on China, Taiwan and what it all means for global security. I hope you find it interesting. Ian Bond, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Ian, uh, as is always the case, a lot seems to have happened in in the past couple of weeks. We've had Russia's partial mobilisation, the first since World War II, and scenes all over social media of uh, very uh, unwilling-looking young men being pressed into service. We've also had the sham referendums taking place in uh, the Luhansk and Donetsk regions, but also Kherson, and with amazing speed. President Putin redrawing the map of Russia to include huge new areas of territory. Then finally, the slightly less well-reported but very significant development of apparent sabotage of gas pipelines running under the Baltic Sea. So these are all part of the maelstrom of chaos that has arisen from Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But I wanted to start with that mobilisation What's your sense of the impact of that? Because from what one can tell from the outside, it's going very badly. But of course, we don't have accurate, unbiased sources on what the Russian people are doing and thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I I think it is a sign of some desperation uh, because of the progress that the Ukrainian armed forces have been making. Putin clearly would rather not have mobilized, partially or otherwise, in the same way that, you know, he's been very reluctant to describe this war as a war. Yeah. So all along, he's been making considerable efforts to try and keep life for most people in Russia as normal as possible. This shows that he's reaching the limits of that, I think. Yeah. Now, in terms of how it's actually going, I mean, I think we should be careful. Um, there was some polling by the the, the relatively reliable Lavada Center, which suggests that although a narrow minority of Russians are now in support of the, the war, there's still plurality. Those who are actually opposed to the war are in a significantly smaller minority. And a majority of those who are being conscripted seem to be accepting their fate and saying, well, you know, we've got to defend the motherland. Now, you know, that I think reflects in large part the propaganda environment in which they they mostly live. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of people heading for the borders, but um, we shouldn't mistake that for the generality of the population leaving the country. And
0: I suppose the the important related question is what this means for the for the war. Uh, now, n- neither you or I is is a military specialist, but what it suggests is that where the Russians may lack competence, training, um, and and sort of professionalism in their uniform military, what they don't lack is numbers, and of course, their way of doing war has has historically uh, been to commit enormous human resources, be fairly indifferent to casualties, uh, and of course, completely indifferent to casualties on the other side, civilian or otherwise. So do we think that the mobilisation can deliver what Putin really needs, which is a change in the balance of the conflict on the ground?
1: Uh, I'm I'm sceptical. I mean, he is, I think, in a sense, um, taking advice from Clausewitz, so I mean, Clausewitz didn't quite say that quantity has a quality all of its own, but he said something pretty close to it. Yeah. Um, and I think you know Putin would probably subscribe to that. And as you say, that's very much the historical Russian way of, of war, Soviet way of war, for that matter. I mean, the problem for Russia is it doesn't have the demographics to be able to sustain that for very long. The pool from which Putin is pulling these mobilized troops uh, is relatively small because the people are those who were born in the late Soviet period when birth rates were very low, or those who were born in the early years after the breakup of the Soviet Union when the birth rate was catastrophically low. And just sending a lot of people with rusty rifles into battle isn't going to do the job either. Um, now, you know, there, there are steps, allegedly, to make Russian defense industry ramp up production. But over the last 30 years, Russian defense industry has become quite dependent on foreign components, um, foreign machine tools, and so on it's not going to be easy for Putin to ramp up production of equipment. And so you're going to be pulling older and older kit out of storage, which takes more and more time to put into any kind of condition to use, and is then no match for the more modern weapons that NATO is supplying to Ukraine. So then the question becomes, can Putin get Weapons supplies from anywhere else. He's been getting drones from Iran. Are they a game changer? I mean, they've been useful. They're, they're, you know, some of them have already damaged facilities in Odessa, for example. But I'm not, I'm not convinced that they're going to have quite the same effect that you know the Bayraktar Turkish drones had in the early stages of this conflict, or indeed even more so in the war between Azerbaijan and, and Armenia. Will the Chinese step in? I think the Chinese have been very reluctant to get so directly involved in this conflict so far. So, I I don't see this mobilization as a game changer. I think it will extend the war. It will increase the casualties on both sides, but especially on the Russian side. But, you know, is Putin going to get a decisive breakthrough to Kiev by throwing another 100,000 men into the meat grinder? No, I don't think he is. I suppose the
0: intriguing question is does he believe he can if you do have an insight into his thinking that would be wonderful i we're all struggling to understand but do we still think that putin is trying his original objective which effectively is to dominate the whole of ukraine or is you know is he settling for these so-called new russia territories that you know we'll come on to talk about in a moment
1: yeah I mean, I don't think Putin's ultimate aim has changed. But as in 2014, I think Putin is prepared to take the long view and to settle temporarily for intermediate aims if that's what he can get. And part of my evidence for that is a speech that he made in St. Petersburg a couple of months ago, where he likened himself to Peter the Great fighting the Great Northern War against Sweden. Peter the Great had uh, had to fight for 21 years before achieving victory. Now, I don't think Putin's got twenty-one years, um, given his age already, and you know many rumours about his physical condition. But it does seem to me that he is prepared to take what he can if he can get the Europeans to pressurise the Ukrainians into a ceasefire that gives him, you know, the territory that he currently holds then you know, he can take a few years, rebuild the forces, learn some of the lessons from what didn't work this time, um, and then go again. One of the things that occurred to me with the events of the past week, with
0: the sham referendum, and also the issue of the pipelines, is that perhaps Putin's Russia has proved itself to be rather hopeless at conventional war. And uh, the Ukrainian military, not only were they able to defend their ground, but they're now retaking ground. But Russia still seems to be quite effective at the unconventional operations. So, for example, holding a sham referendum and then redrawing the map, whilst nobody seriously believes that the people of that area voted 99% to be part of Russia, it does change the way in which we look at the conflict. How would you respond to that sort of theory?
1: Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how effective the um, the sham referendums are. And I mean, they are a complete farce. I, I don't know how effective these are going to be. But I mean, I'm afraid, you know, there are already signs that some Western media are kind of swallowing the bait. I don't want to single out um, RTE, because I think they're worse than anybody else, because I think there are others as well. But I mean, an RTE headline this morning caught my eye, which said, um, referendums held last week in which four Ukrainian regions voted in a landslide to join Russia, at which point, you know, I practically sort of um, threw my cornflakes at the computer. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there will be others, you know, there will be separatist regions, breakaway regions, um, all the language that Russia uses. And I think it's incredibly important that um, Western media companies, including the BBC, which I'm afraid still refers to Donetsk and Luhansk as as separatist regions when they're Russian occupied regions, um, you know, they need to call a spade a spade. Yeah, I think that's a really important
0: point. I also, I'd missed that RTE headline, but I I thought that even the BBC, it seems to me to talk about a referendum without inserting a qualifier, which is, you know, whether you call it a sham or a fake or whatever, you're then describing a democratic um, activity, which this, this clearly wasn't. But to talk yeah. about the situation, so you know, the Russians are now going through the pantomime of saying that these places are now part of Russia. So if you carry out any warfare on on this territory, you're now attacking Russia. Um, how dare you? You know, uh, I I don't see why it should change Ukraine's um, absolute determination to re- con- regain control of their sovereign territory. But do you think it changes the way that Russia responds? Does it, for example, uh, give them, in their own kind of twisted logic, the right to? Uh, strike harder at, at targets uh, deeper in in Ukraine you know held by the Ukrainian government as a kind of um, you know, retaliatory measure.
1: No on both on both counts I mean first of all not only have the Russians not responded in any particular way I mean any more than they were already to Ukrainian attacks, in Crimea, which is which Russia has regarded as part of Russia since 2014, um, though nobody else agrees. But even on absolutely undisputed Russian territory in the Belgorod um, oblast, alongside the uh, the Ukrainian border, there have been Ukrainian strikes, um, and the Russians have not responded to to that in any particularly um, different way. And in terms of striking at uh, targets elsewhere in Ukraine, well they've been doing that from day one of the um, of the war. You know, their problem now is that they may be running short of the kinds of munitions and um the intelligence required to be able to to do that. You may remember that, that in the very early days uh they they launched um missiles at a military facility outside Lviv, very, very close to the um to the Polish border. Um Uh, they haven't been able to do that, I think, for some time. So we should stop frightening ourselves with the sort of bogeyman that, oh, God, you know, now this means that if the Ukrainians try to drive the Russians out of what we regard as Ukrainian territory, the Russians are going to go nuclear. I mean, I just don't buy that.
0: So that's a really important point. And you you anticipated my question
1: there. There,
0: There's been lots of talk about the so-called Russian doctrine, which presupposes the use of tactical nuclear weapons, by which we mean smaller nuclear weapons. Uh, Your view is that that they they won't go there. And that's a sort of that's part of the fear, fear mongering on the Russian side.
1: I mean, I can't absolutely rule out that they they won't go there. Um, But you know, that's partly going to be down to the signals that are sent by the West. In other words, I mean, nothing is as provocative to Putin as weakness. So the more that the West says, we are afraid that Russia may use nuclear weapons, the more likely it is that Putin will continue to make the threat of using nuclear weapons and perhaps even use one or two just to demonstrate that he really means it. Whereas, you know, to the extent that the West can send the signal that using nuclear weapons will only increase um, Western support to Ukraine, um, because, using nuclear weapons to attack a non-nuclear state is such a taboo. And that would be crossing a, a, an internationally recognized red line in the most serious way. And I think that's got to be the message from Western leaders to Putin. It can be a private message, but it's got to be a message, you know, please understand, if you go nuclear, we will regard the gloves as being off. Yeah.
0: So I I wanted to um talk a bit about the, uh, the Nord Stream pipelines. So as just a brief reminder for listeners, these controversially were originally designed to bring Russian gas straight to Germany through the Baltic Sea. And as the Russian invasion of Ukraine took shape back in February, the almost inevitable point that these pipelines were a complete travesty of, of sort of European strategic interests uh, dawned on on the German sort of political leadership, and, and, and they're effectively now mothballed. So these are, these are unused pipelines, but they still represent in some respects a sort of strategic opportunity for Russia economically in the long term. But uh, at a certain point in the last few days, no one's entirely sure when, uh, a great sort of bubbling surge of gas appeared on the surface of the Baltic Sea and it became clear that the pipelines had been sabotaged. So starting from the very top, um, is it the Russians that did this? Why Why would they blow up their own pipeline?
1: Um, I mean, it's almost certain that it's the Russians who did this. It's very hard to see anybody else who would do it. And um, why did they do it? That's a, an interesting question. And it seems to me that, I mean, it's sort of burning your bridges behind you. Yeah. It's saying, you know, we are never going to go back to supplying energy to Europe. So don't imagine that, you know, you can put any pressure on us through, you know, a future ban on the purchase of Russian gas or whatever. We're just not going to sell it to you. Um, To which my response is, okay, uh, you know, yes, that means probably we're going to have – a couple of difficult winters. And I think one of the things that Europeans have been very slow to do is to recognise the need for demand management uh, um, as well as trying to find alternative sources of supply. I can't remember who it was, but somebody yesterday made a, an interesting point that actually the the time to worry about is not so much this coming winter as the following winter hmm. um, in the sense that Europe has still, in fact, been able to use a lot of Russian gas to fill storage for this winter. Um, that's not going to be the case for the following winter. Now, you know, for me, there's an interesting question, which is, what's the state of the global market going to be um, next year? Russia likes to try to pretend that, you know, it can simply switch supply from Europe to Asia. But the infrastructure for that is not in place and won't be in place for a few years. Yeah. So in, in damaging these pipelines, Russia is probably putting a permanent crimp in the amount of gas that it can... Export, but you know I'm going to be very interested to see do other producers um, over the next year ramp up production so that in fact Russian Russian gas becomes more or less irrelevant for Europe, or in fact is Europe has Europe got to look forward to a period where um, its gas supply is you know long term reduced?
0: Yeah. And of course, as part of that discussion, it seems to me that when we talked about Putin's energy war, before this pipeline sabotage, uh, we, w- we thought we were talking about uh, it basically a price war. But if he's willing to blow up these pipelines, do we think that th- this sort of covert sabotage operation is actually something that will be a feature of the way Putin uh, escalates, seeing as his conventional war in Ukraine is failing?
1: Yeah, I mean a question of attribution comes up of course. Mm. I mean so far, you know, though lots of us think that the Russians did it, I don't think there is concrete proof of that until somebody can go down and sort of inspect the uh, the damage and look for bits of mines lying on the sea bottom and that sort of thing, it may be rather difficult to um, to establish responsibility. But I think it would be extremely prudent for NATO to assume um, that there is an increased threat to subsea infrastructure. I heard that the Norwegians are already increasing their uh, patrolling and so on. We know that the Russians have this capability. One thing that the UK did get right in the 2021 uh, security and Defense Review, the so-called Integrated Review, was to decide that they needed more capability for protecting subsea infrastructure, including cables and so on. Um, but it seems to me that, that you know, there is definitely a, a threat to that sort of critical infrastructure. Um, and NATO needs to to be on the front foot uh, in having ships deployed and submarines deployed and whatever whatever else to make sure that actually that stuff can be protected.
0: Yeah. So we're just sort of drawing this discussion to a close now. Um, we've seen a, a, a six months that none of us could have predicted uh, a full-scale land invasion of, of the largest country in Europe after Russia, um, the, the extraordinary incompetence of the Russian military, the extraordinary bravery and determination of the Ukrainian. But where do you see this going, particularly in your role at the CER with a sort of focus to some extent on Europe's collective security. Uh, Germany proclaimed its site and vendor, but still doesn't quite seem to know what that means. Uh, You've you've got political complexity in Italy. Hungary is still very much in a sort of pro-Russia stance. What's the big picture in Europe at the sort of geostrategic level on dealing with this crisis?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right to point to um, the the problems of a number of member states and uh, the political situation in some member states. Um, we have yet to see, you know, exactly what the Italian government is going to look like. Meloni, despite her. Blood-curdling rhetoric on migration and, you know, global elites, which I take as rather a, a sort of sinister code for um, the international Jewish conspiracy, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to NATO and um, Ukraine, she's actually been pretty solid. Uh, on the other hand, you know, her coalition partners Berlusconi and Salvini have been anything but solid. They're both sort of fully signed-up admirers of, of Putin. So. Um, yeah, we do have some some problems ahead, and I think you're right to say that uh, Germany has proclaimed a and vendor, but it hasn't actually decided what that means in practical terms. The slowness to supply Ukraine with the weapons that it's asking for, um, you know, speaks volumes to how uncertain Germany is about what to to do next. I mean, I think there are some things that the EU is is doing right and doing more of. It was quick to make use of um, its funds for procuring weapons for Ukraine. It's increasing the amount of spending on defence research and that sort of thing. And I hope that the Commission can use its funds wisely to encourage some rationalisation of the the European defence market. I mean, I think, you know, this is an area where in industrial terms, the the EU has in the past been quite good. It's never been able to tackle the defence industry because member states have always said that it's a national security matter and stay out of it. But I think, you know, this this crisis may have pushed in the direction of more cooperation on that. Um, and then the big question, of course, is what happens in the US in 2024? And that's going to have a big influence on, on what happens in Europe. Um, you know, if we see the return of Trump or a Trump-like president, um, then I think, you know, we have quite a big problem, because I don't think that Europe by that time will have stepped up its defence and security spending to the level needed um, to be able to deal with with um, the threat from Russia on its own. So with all eyes uh, focused, once again,
0: on American politics, and of course, the midterms, which plays a role, Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Really incisive and wide ranging discussion.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Rana Mitter. Rana, welcome. Hello, Arthur. Nice to speak to you. We're talking today about Ukraine, which might seem an odd thing to talk to a professor of uh, Chinese history and politics about. But I wanted to talk to you about it, because it seems that Ukraine has sort of changed the rulebook for great powers. And it's it's changed the rulebook for China just as much as it has for everyone else. Is that a fair starting point for a conversation? It is a fair starting point. But I have to
2: say that I think that viewed from Beijing, Ukraine, while clearly it's an important matter in terms of geopolitics, probably sits in a level of priorities below other things that are immediately of concern to China. In other words, it's existential for Europe. There's no doubt about that. Whether it's existential for China is a rather harder call.
0: Yeah, I suppose one of the things that's very interesting that has happened in, in the last couple of months Uh, is of course the crisis over Taiwan intensifying in part in connection with Nancy Pelosi's visit and then China deciding to undertake particularly sort of intrusive exercises uh, around and over Taiwan's uh, maritime area. But in some respects, it feels as though Russia's invasion of Ukraine forces people to reckon with the possibility of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and forces people to think about what they would do. What's your view on, first of all, whether or not China will seek to retake Taiwan by force? I think that it is still the case...
2: At some level, actually, as China has, has said for a long time, that if they can find other methods to do it, and we could talk a little bit about what those other methods might be, then their preference would not be to take um, Taiwan by force. There's a variety of reasons for that, but put it at its most basic there are ways and means that you could take Taiwan through a military assault. It wouldn't be that easy. It may become easier in the late 2020s than in the early 2020s. But then you still have the problem of how to deal with it once you've actually taken it. And I think all things being equal, Beijing, as it's shown so often on many other occasions, would rather essentially get the other side into a position where there's a fait
0: accompli and a full-scale active military invasion doesn't really do that. And do you think Beijing's view has been changed at all by the spectacle of Ukraine? Clearly a lesser military power than Russia demonstrating that it can defend its territory very effectively. Does that factor into Chinese thinking at all, or is it not really important? That's not really the
2: important thing about Ukraine from the Chinese point of view. I mean, essentially, one of the things that I think makes people smile, both in Taipei and in in Beijing, one of the few things that might unite them in in smiling, um, is the idea that because there's suddenly been an invasion of one European country by another European power this has been a game changer from the point of view of a much longer standing dispute um, in the Asia-Pacific sphere. China has been thinking about the ways in which it can incorporate Taiwan into the People's Republic of China, really ever since 1949 and the civil war, and certainly been actively thinking about uh, aspects of that for decades now. Uh, You know, it was an issue in the 1980s, in the 1990s, certainly when there was uh, a Taiwan Straits crisis. And also the the practicalities of how you would actually seek to uh, subdue Taiwan are just very different from the nature of what we've seen, you know, a horrific cross-border land war in Europe, which is very different from the kind of conflict that would be, would be needed in Taiwan. So in that sense, I think it's fair to say that Ukraine adds a new mode of thinking for China on top of a much longer standing set of uh, of, uh, of decisions. But to give a quick example of something where, yes, I think it probably has changed the agenda. If you think about the early weeks of the war where Russia was bombing Kiev directly, because it seemed, at least presumably in Russian strategic uh, minds, that a very quick and fast invasion of uh, Ukraine might lead to a puppet government being installed. Well, one assumes that was the, the aim. Yeah. And much of the media footage was, you know, of terrified civilians in the metro. Uh, and this, of course, you know, created a huge amount of bad publicity for Russia around the world. Well, China, I think, still cares a bit more about international publicity, to some extent, at least visible publicity, than the Russians do. And the idea of, you know, civilians being forced into the Taipei metro because they're being bombed from from above and this being relayed by, you know, global News agencies all around the world is something that I think the Beijing government would try and avoid. So, that kind of comms management issue, which is one of the things that is clearly very central to how Ukraine is seen around the world, that's something I think the Chinese probably have been thinking about as a result of what's happened in the uh, transmission of news about the Ukraine conflict.
0: Yeah. And how about the degree to which outsiders have been willing to continue to supply Ukraine with ever more? sophisticated and uh, sort of powerful weapons. Do you think China looks and then scratches its head and thinks about what Taiwan might get, particularly from the Americans? Or perhaps it doesn't feature in their calculation in the same way? Well, it does feature in their calculation, you're right, but it's been featuring for a long time, really, one
2: can argue, since 1979, because that was the year uh, when on 1st of January 1979, uh, the United States finally gave diplomatic recognition to the People's Republic of China. So in other words, the recognition of China from Washington's point of view was switched to the mainland uh, away from Taiwan. And this got a lot of people, not, not least in Taiwan, but also in the US Congress, uh, pretty cross. And as a sort of attempted compensation for this, at least to some extent a compensation for this, the Taiwan Relations Act was passed, still very much valid, but passed in 1979, in which it stated that the US has the right to enable Taiwan to defend itself. And that has been the basis on which there's actually a continuing stream of armaments that have been sold to Taiwan over the decades, long before the Ukraine crisis. Now, those sales have waxed and waned. Those have now suddenly become more urgent again. But I think the general feeling is that the major trigger is not Ukraine as such, but rather the fact that over the past five to 10 years, it's become evident that Xi Jinping, as leader of China, is much more of a risk taker, much more willing to really push the Taiwan issue than his two predecessors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, were. So in other words, it has to do with a dynamic in Chinese politics, rather than necessarily being driven by a a, a parallel or an analogy with Ukraine as such.
0: Yeah. And and of course, that makes sense. China is such a powerful country. It doesn't need to behave in a certain way because of what's happening in Europe. Looking at China's relations with Europe, um, clearly we've moved a long way from the so-called golden era, uh, some some call it the golden era, of David Cameron and George Osborne seeking to get the UK and China as close as possible in their relations. This sort of great decoupling which we hear about, is that is that something that's really happening or is that just a sort of a, a political concept that is useful for certain people in Western countries to talk about as, as they kind of distance themselves temporarily from China. I think that decoupling on both sides, China
2: trying to decouple from the US, the US trying to decouple from China, is real. But both sides, people who actually look at the details, realise that it's going to be very, very hard to achieve. The United States and other Western actors have become increasingly nervous about what they perceive as essential products that are only available uh, because of trade relations with, uh, with China and looking to diversify uh, sources for those sorts of, um, those sorts of products. Um, but at the same time, China has also made it clear in its latest five-year plan that it is aiming to make itself as little dependent as possible on the US and its allies. But then think about the reality of what's happening on the ground. Um, A lot of major Western companies, Ford, Volkswagen, uh, Japanese companies, Toyota, uh, Matsushita, have large factories and indeed markets in China. And it's very hard to see them deciding simply to kind of step back from those markets. Nor does China at the moment have indigenous capacity enough to be able to replace all of the foreign products that are uh, made in those sectors. At the same time, It's also the case that in some very, very crucial areas, and one that's become very, very newsworthy in recent uh, uh, months, is Taiwan and its hold on semiconductor chips. Now, 70% of the world's highest quality semiconductor chips are made in Taiwan. That is a problem for the West. If Taiwan were to get into big trouble, then uh, the supply of chips might be cut off. But it's also, I think, fairly evident that if China made a move on Taiwan that Taiwan became nervous about, then the destruction of those semiconductor chip factories would also be very, very damaging to China's technology uh, enterprises as well. So the intertwined nature of many of the global supply chains, including in a whole variety of areas where actually um, there are uh, real um, uh, dangers to the economies of the countries concerned, um, is more complex than I think the language of decoupling uh,
0: would suggest. I want to take this back to Europe. Um, what do you think China, uh, what would its attitude be, given you know the significance of its relationship with Russia, but it still has a, a not unimportant relationship with Ukraine?
2: Yes, I mean, China was the single... Um, largest single country investor in ukraine the eu as a whole was uh, a bigger investor than china but in terms of individual countries china put a lot more money into uh, ukraine yeah. than the united states for instance perhaps not so true now with with, with weaponry i think that if you had to summarize it uh, as to what china would want to happen over the ukraine invasion crisis um it's that the whole thing would go away they wanted to be resolved really really quickly and if you look at the public statements they've made they're all quite bland statements that everyone needs to get around a table and sort out peace and everyone should value peace but unlike for instance turkey which has actually played something of an active role uh china has done as far as we can tell very little actively to uh be involved in mediation it doesn't really want to get involved that way and that's actually been fairly typical of most international negotiation where china isn't a direct player um I think that in the short term, China will continue to benefit and be quite pleased to benefit from some of the material um, upsides. Uh, it's now got basically cheap oil and gas on, on tap because they can't be sold in Europe. They can be sold into India and China instead. It's got leverage over Russia for a whole variety of areas. Uh, so, for instance, uh, China's interest in the Arctic, perhaps in pushing back a bit against India. These are areas where it might seek further Russian assistance and having Russia essentially beholden to it is helpful that way. But in terms of the overall Ukraine crisis, I think that um, China will not take any particularly active view because there's not enough of an interest either in terms of some point of geopolitical principle or indeed in terms of overall investments to make it worthwhile. You could find a sort of um, parallel, only a sort of parallel, but quite a useful one, with Afghanistan last year, where when NATO pulled out, uh, China condemned um, you know, the American uh, chaos that had been unleashed, as they as they phrased it. But of course, for a long time, China had essentially had a sort of free ride off NATO, essentially keeping security stable-ish, uh, stable-ish anyway, in, in Afghanistan. And now that there's no NATO there anymore, China's had to think a bit harder about how it does actually keep some sort of uh, lid on what's going on in Afghanistan. Ukraine is different because, of course, there's no border, uh, whereas, of course, Afghanistan is much closer to uh, to hand. But that overall sense that other hegemons, proxy wars, are something that China doesn't want to get involved in, I think remains quite a strong principle, or deciding um, principle on their part.
0: Professor Mitter, thank you so much for talking to us.
2: Thanks very much, Arthur. It's been a pleasure. your favourite history nerds are back
0: Wherever you get your podcasts. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app, Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and get exclusive merchandise all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes.